0: In a giant industrial building in a rundown section of Oakland, John Oram is building an empire.
1: You're in a 200,000 square foot uh, commercial facility. This used to be a big, uh, what was it? It was a bakery. A big, thank you. That was the word I was looking for. This was a bakery, and when we took it over, it had two inches of flour all over the place. We totally demolished everything, gutted everything, and rebuilt what you're going to see here. And right now, it's about 130,000 square feet of area that we use, and it's all cultivation and distribution in this building.
0: Nug's massive headquarters made me start thinking of John as a mogul. Walking around with him, it was clear there was so much more going on than just growing and selling weed. It felt very corporate. There's stuff labeled with the Nug logo everywhere, And in John's office, there's a wall covered in framed trademarks.
1: Concentrates, powders, syrups, uh, blogs, magazines, online magazines, print magazines, scientific research, product development, drinking bottled water, drinking water, candy, sweets, chocolate, bubble gum. Yep. And there's more and more and more of those.
0: John faces the wall as he sits at his desk where he's probably wearing a Nug shirt or sipping out of a Nug-labeled water bottle. Brand is everything to John. You met him a couple episodes ago when we talked about banking for cannabis companies. He's CEO and co-founder of Nug, a California marijuana company that manufactures and sells a bunch of different products. He's got enough trademarks surrounding Nug that when you ask him exactly how many he has, he's lost count. But pursuing those trademarks, defending them, and pushing the Nug brand out into the world is a huge part of the company's strategy. He does it, even when it might complicate his life.
1: I do live and breathe this brand, um, which makes somewhat of a challenge for me because I have teenage kids, and of course, you know, teenage kids experiment, and I need to control that. I need to allow, and I have, you know, I need to be honest with my kids and they do know what my business is and 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 they do know my philosophy behind cannabis and so when i wear a nug t-shirt or a nug hoodie or a nug hat they understand that i'm not promoting something that is cool and oh it's weed and you know it's not about the the sexiness and the coolness of it it's about This is a strong business. The brand is core to the business, and I'm going to represent the brand, and I'm going to try to normalize that brand.
0: As John sees it, Nug's brand is where the company's true value is. It's how you plant your flag in a new industry that's in the middle of a serious explosion. And it's how you prepare for the single biggest opportunity that pop moguls will ever have, the end of federal prohibition. But has John really done enough to protect his brand? On this episode of Law 360's Legalization, we talk about why marijuana companies have to go above and beyond to safeguard their brands, and why they should be doing it now any way that they can. I'm Diana Novak-Jones. Nuggs Nug's manufacturing facility, there's a tiny Nug sticker on the machine that fills vape cartridges. There's a Nug-branded snowboard in the office building's lobby. And in another building, a mural made from old product packaging. John's not just decorating his factory with Nug stuff because it looks cool. He wants his employees to absorb the pride he feels in the brand because they're sort of the first representatives he's got.
1: You got to remember where cannabis came from in California. It was underground. It was it was cash. It was don't talk about it to the neighbors. And so, how do you break that mold? And how do you let people have pride in the fact that they work for a cannabis business? And the way we do that is inward is letting people see the nug brand, let them feel the nug brand, let them know that they are the nug brand because ultimately the The strongest advocate of the brand that I can have is somebody who feels it and and knows it and and owns it and expresses that outwards. So we truly, truly try to build that culture uh, in, in the office.
0: That goes along with the more concrete efforts that John has made to frame out Nug's space in the marijuana market. He has a very deliberate trademark strategy using both the federal and California state trademark system to grab onto domains and products and marketing terms. And he uses an IP attorney to defend them.
1: If you look across all cannabis products, they're rather ubiquitous. Everybody sells flour, everybody has a chocolate bar, everybody has you know, a concentrate or a vape pen. So what's the differentiator? And the form factors, sure, you can make a different chocolate mold. you can make a unique uh, vape pen, but what's the differentiator? And especially if you're trying to move across states and get a larger audience, what is the differentiator? How are you gonna attract people? And it really is brand. And so we've been very focused on building our brand, building consumer loyalty around our brand, protecting our brand through uh, you know, uh, uh, intellectual property protections. And so all of that, I believe, is, is setting the foundation for a multi-state strategy.
0: It's all about positioning the company for the future, a future where cannabis is no longer hampered by federal law. When that happens? The world's biggest companies are going to enter the industry. It will be a tipping point for the current businesses. Can you compete, or will you be acquired? John knows it's coming, and with a strong brand, John hopes he'll be a good target if the big guys want to buy an existing company, or he'll be able to compete with them. But that tipping point will also be a test for the protections John has put in place around Nug's intellectual property. Once the market opens to everyone, will they hold up?
2: The challenge is the opportunity. The fact that things are hazy is really the opportunity. Prohibition itself is a gift, right? If prohibition weren't here, we wouldn't be at this conference. We wouldn't be talking to these companies that are very successful now, but got started in garages, right, or or on farms for for farmers that aren't public companies, right? Uh, So that's prohibition itself is a gift, and this grayness associated with the future of legalization is also a gift.
0: That's Tom Zuber. He's the managing partner of Zuber Lawler. They do intellectual property work for cannabis companies. Tom wants his clients doing everything they legally can now to protect their brand. So if and when legalization comes along, they're ready. That means trademarks, Food and Drug Administration filings, patents, and more.
2: The first step to providing legal services uh, to convincing a client that they need it is actually, in many instances, education. It's saying, you know what, if your company is a billion-dollar company or two-billion-dollar company, most of that value will be IP. It'll be a function of FDA approvals. It'll be a function of uh, international uh, uh, IP protection, and so on and so forth. That's literally the case. Uh, and uh, also, if you're very successful, you will be most likely a party to IP litigation of a significant sort. And, and so uh, what we tell them is that it makes sense to look at investing in intellectual property assets and FDA compliance and so forth, just like you look at investing in the land that you put your manufacturing facilities on and associate a license with.
0: Tom says some products containing cannabis derivatives can apply to be designated as safe by the FDA. And strains of cannabis can be patented as well.
2: And so as another example, if you've found the strain amongst all strains. And this strain is just awesome. And you smoke this strain and you're five inches taller and smarter, right? So that's strain uh, you may want to protect. And in the United States, uh, we're a bit quirky in the sense that we offer plant patents in a way that they aren't really offered by other major countries. You can protect plant, varieties of plant and, and other sorts of things with this means or that means. But this notion of a U.S. plant patent per se uh, is, is particular to the U.S. in, in many ways. Uh, and so that's an amazing gift to people that own a strain like that one, uh, because you can submit it. And if you prove to the patent office that it's distinctive, then uh, you, can, you can obtain a plant patent.
0: But when it comes to trademarks, things get tricky. Cannabis businesses do have common law rights just from using their brand, but the real brand protection happens with registered federal trademarks. Amanda Conley and Shabnam Malik run the law firm Brand & Branch in Oakland, and they founded the International Cannabis Bar Association. They represent cannabis companies and help them develop their IP strategies. Here's Amanda. When you're applying for a trademark
3: registration, your application has to identify both the mark and the goods and services with which it will be used. And so if those goods and services are not federally lawful, the trademark office, the federal trademark office, generally will not approve that application. So it does it does create a real problem. There are strategies for addressing it, um, but, but that's the
4: primary issue. And this is Shabnam. There isn't actually a law, federal law, that says you may not have a trademark registration if the goods or services are unlawful. That standard has arisen out of a a long line of cases um, that has pulled together some language in the federal statute that confers these trademark registrations. And courts have sort of decided that insofar as the goods and services are unlawful, an applicant may not get this grant of these rights by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office.
0: So how do you get a federal trademark on a marijuana product? You have to work with what the Trademark Office does allow. But first, I pitch Shabnam and Amanda on my business idea, in case this whole podcast thing doesn't work out. Diana's muffins. Now I know what you're thinking, but these are just muffins. How would the trademark process for my muffin company compared to, say, a marijuana vape company.
4: With muffins, you just say muffins, and they're lawful, um, unless they have cannabis in them. And uh, and with vapes, you would just say vape. So we won't apply to register a trademark for using connection with cannabis oil, because we know that that's going to be refused. So Diane's Vape Company is going to have a whole different approach at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office than muffins. And frankly, it puts Diane's Vape Company at a disadvantage. You're going to spend more money Uh, applying to register your mark in connection with more goods and services that you ordinarily wouldn't because you have to build this blanket around yourself. You are going to be initially refused registration for a handful of reasons and have to pay lawyers to overcome those. And ultimately you end up with a portfolio that is a little bit square, peg, round, hole, whereas Dan's Muffins is spot on. Someone else moves into the Muffins territory or a related good, you show up with that trademark registration. There is no argument about what it is you are offering um, and the trademark you're using.
0: So to get the trademark for my vape company, I can't trademark the marijuana item the way I can for my muffin company. I have to trademark a bunch of stuff all around the cannabis product. Stuff like my website branded clothing, and even a vape you can use with tobacco. But isn't that misleading? Amanda says no.
3: It's, it's important to, to help clients understand that the question is not, is everything you do federally lawful? Um, because you're not required to disclose to the trademark office everything you do. you're You're required to disclose the things you're seeking registered protection over, uh, but not everything you do. And so so that's sort of an important piece that I think throws people, you know how how can how can we do this? Are we trying to hide the ball? And we're not. We're just trying to get protection where we can. And we are being very transparent um, about what our clients are are doing generally.
0: The idea is if marijuana becomes federally legal, and someone tries to swoop in on my cannabis brand, I can stop them. I can point to all the legal things that I have trademarks for and say the marijuana brand is mine too. It's not helpful
3: to file cannabis related applications right now, but it is helpful to file these ancillary goods and services because that's going to be our strongest argument, right? If our client has a registration in class 34 in connection with pipes and rolling papers and, you know, maybe cannabis turns out to be in class 34, tobacco is, it would make sense, we have a strong argument that, no, we don't have a registration for cannabis, but if someone else files in 34, we have a registration in that class with highly related goods, we should block their application, whether or not... um, our Swiss level. Yeah.
0: But this is all theoretical. We don't really know what will happen when legalization comes along. Will building a trademark bullseye ring around a brand hold up when the US Patent and Trademark Office is allowing cannabis trademarks? Or will they just let someone take your brand? That's something John has concerns about.
1: I definitely worry about that bullseye theory working. Uh, the, the two things there, though if we ex- invest enough money and show enough that we're using those terms in commerce, we can get some rights just to the use itself. We have commercial rights. We've been putting a ton of money, a ton of investment in this. We're first in line for that right when it, that federal right when it does exist. The Other thing we're doing is in California, you can in fact trademark a cannabis term, a cannabis business, a cannabis brand. For California specifically, and we're doing that. So I think that also helps prop up the argument that, hey, we were here first. We were using it in California. We are protected in California. We should be the first people in line to protect it on a national basis when that actually opens up.
0: Many companies are trying to fill gaps in their federal trademark registrations with state ones, just like John. And while state trademarks might not have a lot of use for other industries, Shabnam says there's something many of her clients are asking for.
4: And they want them because it is sort of an answer to the unavailability of the federal trademark registration in cases where they want a registration that the the document itself would say, you know, brand X, Acme brand marijuana. So they want them and and they should get them and it makes a lot of sense. It's, I mean, it's interesting, you know, we neither of us certainly had ever filed a state trademark application before we started working in the cannabis industry. And um, I didn't even really understand what the process involved until about five years ago. And so what what the state trademark registration really does is um, sort of validate or support what, what rights you already have in any event, which are your common law rights. So the patchwork
0: of filings that cannabis companies can put together, you know, the state and federal trademarks, FDA filings and patents, that can make up a pretty strong IP portfolio for these businesses. And that kind of portfolio is key to these companies' next steps. At least that's what Dina Jalbert says. She leads a mergers and acquisitions firm called Align Business Advisory Services. Because Align works with smaller companies... Dina has been involved with a lot of cannabis deals.
5: Yeah, we are currently representing um, just about $400 million in enterprise value in deals in the cannabis space. And again, they span everything from accessories to service providers to, um, to producers uh, and, and uh, across the spectrum.
0: She's watched as the cannabis industry has become a major hotbed of M&A over the last few years. At first... It was other cannabis businesses buying up as many licenses and companies as possible. They were trying to get ahead of big alcohol and tobacco in case those guys decided to jump into the space.
5: You know, because they're publicly traded and because of the federal um, illegality, they can't get into the industry in a meaningful way yet. You're seeing some get in, but... But what that's doing is it's spurring a rush of M&A for those who are in the industry because they're trying to create mass and scale um, before those entities are able uh, to enter the
0: space. Dina calls that M&A a land grab. See, back then, companies were just trying to get a foothold in as many states as possible. And that was fine because customers didn't care about a brand. They just wanted to buy weed now that they could. Times have changed, though. Now there are so many dispensaries and products and choices. Customers are relying more and more on brands they trust.
5: There's a dispensary on Rodeo Drive now. You know, it's it's for the discerning user. It's not just the days of the head shop. Um, it's 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 turned into something else, and that focus is one based off of brand and consumer experience and consumer awareness.
0: So now. Dina says IP portfolios have gone from a nice-to-have to a must-have for companies that are interested in acquisition. What
5: we're seeing is acquirers are looking for IP um, and IP that can, can be in defended in the future um, because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the regulatory barrier to entry allows the companies who are in the industry already time to amass that IP portfolio. Um, And if they have that, that portfolio of IP, when the consumer product companies and the big tobacco companies or the big alcohol companies or whomever um, make their presence into the industry, they will either have to buy them or license this IP in order to participate.
0: Those major companies are waiting for the end of federal prohibition. But when it happens, Dina says there will be a light switch moment. Companies that were on the sidelines will jump in really quickly.
5: When those who are restricted to enter right now are able to, once that uh, federal regula- uh, regulation is lifted, uh, they're going to come in in droves. And those organizations already have, you know, um, infrastructure, distribution, man- you know, they have all of that um, scale built out um, for their their other product lines, if you will, and it can just be essentially repurposed and utilized in this new industry now that it's legal. It's hard to compete with that um, if you haven't built up that portfolio and created a um, a protection around things that other people don't already have. Um, And so when those big companies come in, they either are going to have to buy you which, which will be extremely lucrative, because um, they'll pay a premium in order to, to, to have access to that IP, um, or they're going to have to license it from you. Uh, and either way,
0: that's, it's a very valuable and, and positive place to be. So has John done enough to protect his brand? He's certainly done all he can. The future is in John's mind as he looks at the wall of trademarks across from his desk. He says he gets solicitations from buyers interested in NUG pretty regularly. But he's not selling. Not right now. He feels like he has options because of the work he's done building his brand.
1: I'm having fun doing this. I like building companies. I like employing people. I like generating revenue. This is fun. So if if the brand and the, the company keeps growing and is able to generate revenue and able to you know, return uh, to make returns back to our investors and, and we just keep on going, great. I love it, great. Uh, but then, you know, the, the, the other side of that coin is, hey, in doing that, we might be making ourselves so attractive that somebody wants to buy us. And if the number's right and the timing is right, then sure. But, but, it, but it's not the end all be all. If we don't get acquired, that doesn't mean we failed. It just means we chose a different path.
6: Thank you for listening to the fourth episode of Law Three Sixty Explores Legalization. This episode and this entire series was written and reported by Diana Novak-Jones. It was produced and mixed by me, Stephen Trader, and our executive producer is Amber McKinney. Many others at Law360 also helped make this show possible, including Ann Erda, Ian Toms, and Ed Beeson. We'd also like to give a big thank you to the National Cannabis Industry Association, Alexandra Rush from the Rosen Group, and to Frank Robeson of the Frank Robeson Law Group and Distinctive Leaf LLC. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner, Elephant, Topher Moore and Alex Elena. Text Me Records, and Freedom Trail Studio. If you want to know more about the show, check out our website at law360.com explores. And if you haven't done so already, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And if you like what you're hearing, leave us a written review. It helps other people find the show and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks.